exclusive details on Republican efforts to block President Biden's gun actions, and a conversation with Duke University's Jake Charles. That and more on this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com. This week, we're going to be talking about Republican efforts to block President Biden's gun actions, a big ruling out of the Fourth Circuit, and an update on President Biden's ATF nominee and where he stands. First, we're going to talk a little bit about some exclusive stories that we've gotten here at The Reload. Um, Two letters have gone out from Republican members of the House of Representatives to the ATF and DOJ, uh, trying their best to convince the administration to abandon its attempts to unilaterally install new gun restrictions. The first was one from 37 Republicans in the House who are calling on the ATF to give up its uh, proposal to ban um, ghost guns, essentially. That's what the proposal targets, unserialized firearms, unfinished firearms, by expanding the ATF's power to regulate what is considered a firearm in the first place. And so these Republicans uh, argue that that is a that is taking the ATF's power well beyond what the statute that regulates firearms allows for. And so they, they say it should be dropped. Um, and then you have the entire House Judiciary Committee Republican Caucus calling on the ATF to drop their attempt at banning AR-15 pistol braces, or at least pistol braces that are commonly used on AR-15s. They argue along the same lines that this is beyond the scope of what the ATF has the power to do. And they also asked the ATF a number of questions about the details of the proposal, who came up with it, what agencies were involved, whether uh, the Office of Management and Budget for the White House was involved or DOJ specifically looked at the proposal. They asked for clarification on a number of points that affect whether or not a brace is considered uh, illegal or not, are essentially considered to be something that has to be registered with the ATF in order to remain legal, um, or otherwise the owner would face a federal felony and potentially years in federal prison if they don't register. So they've given the agency till the end of the month to reply with answers to their, their questions and we'll see how that goes. We'll see whether or not this has any impact on the uh, Biden administration's thought process when it comes to these sorts of executive actions uh, and how the ATF reacts to such a unified response from the party that could potentially win back control of at least one House of, of Congress in the upcoming elections here and once again be responsible for oversight of have control over the oversight of, of the agency. Um, you just saw uh, in another exclusive story for the reload that essentially uh, all but two of the, the Republicans in the Senate signed on to a letter regarding the pistol brace ban uh, saying it should be dropped as well just a few weeks ago. So the Republican Party has absolutely um, coalesced around opposition to these actions from the Biden administration. Um, the, the gun industry has certainly mobilized as well as 
the gun rights movement itself. You've seen over 100,000 comments on the pistol brace ban proposal that's going through this. Both of these plans are going through public rulemaking, which means they have to uh, accept public comment and respond to that public comment before the rule can be finalized. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the comments are going to block the rules from becoming final, but you have seen in the past, even with gun regulations, like uh, the attempt to ban so-called green tip ammunition for uh, AR-15s and, and similar rifles in the past was blocked after overwhelming negative uh, comment, you know, flood of negative comments came into uh, the ATF in regards to that proposal under President Obama. So certainly the pistol brace ban is perhaps approaching that level of negative response and with unified Republican opposition to the idea, there may be some effect there. We'll, we'll have to wait and see whether or not the administration uh, believes that the juice is worth the squeeze, I suppose you'd say, in this situation. But uh, at the same time, you saw President Obama, or, sorry, President Biden's um, ATF nominee gets reach another level of limbo, essentially. Now, there hasn't been any change, which is interesting because he received a tie vote in the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, 11 to 11 vote. David Chipman is the nominee. He's a controversial nominee because he has a long history of supporting much stricter gun laws than probably most of the Democrats in the, the Senate support. Uh, things like, you know, assault weapons bans, uh, registration and even confiscation of certain firearms. Uh, and he's made a, a lot of controversial comments mocking new gun owners last year pushing a conspiracy theory about helicopters being shot down in the Waco standoff, which is not true. Um, and he spent a lot of time during his confirmation walking a lot of those things back and apologizing for them, and additionally promising he would not let his personal opinions on gun policy affect the way he carried out his job if he were to get the ATF director position. Um, Democrats argue, those who support him argue that the agency needs a, a new director because it hasn't had a confirmed one in many years at this point. Um, but Republicans say that he's too extreme and that he's an activist. He's literally a gun rights. A gun, he's literally a gun control activist. He works for uh, Giffords, which is one of the major gun control groups. Uh, he still works for them today. He's worked for a number of gun control groups since he left the ATF about a decade ago. And so they don't they don't want an activist in control of a regulatory agency that is supposed to be neutral and, and nonpartisan. So that's where the rub is. And it turns out a lot of Democrats are still on the fence about this. You've got um, Joe Manchin has not come out and said whether or not he would vote for Chipman. Uh, you have Angus King in Maine, the independent there, who has is in the same situation. Yeah, John Chester's office told me specifically that he has not made up his mind yet on Chipman. Um, and you've, you've seen all of the Republicans now come out in opposition to him because Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who obviously has been involved with 
uh, pushed to expand background checks to uh, private sales with Joe Manchin in the past. He came out this week and said he's not going to vote for Chipman. Susan Collins already said no. I believe every Republican now is going to vote no on Chipman if he's put up for a vote, which remains to be seen. So that means they'll have to corral all 50 Democratic senators to get his nomination through. And right now, they don't have the votes to do that, or they would have already scheduled it. They, as soon as Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, knows he has enough votes to get Chipman through, it's almost certain that he will move quickly to do that. Uh, and so, at the same time, the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, could put him up for a vote as well if he knew he had the votes against him, although that seems like a less likely scenario because uh, you don't see the minority party trying to challenge uh, you know, a confirmation vote like that very often. Um, usually, if there aren't the votes, it simply gets dropped and never comes up for a vote, like you saw with President Trump's ATF nominee when he ran into trouble for his past comments on, on gun control as well. But uh, So that, that's still in a, in a state of limbo, and the longer it stays in a state of limbo, the more interesting it'll, it'll be to see whether or not he can actually get 50 votes. So... Then we also saw this week a big ruling out of the Fourth Circuit where the ban on sales of handguns to people between the ages of 18 and 20 was struck down as unconstitutional, as conflicting with the Second Amendment by a appeals judge in the Fourth Circuit, which could have major impacts going forward. Uh, for now, it's likely to be appealed to an en banc hearing you have the full court of the Fourth Circuit, which uh, I think most onlookers expect are less likely to come out on the 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 same with the same decision striking down the the prohibition on selling handguns to young adults. But it, if it does survive that, or if the Supreme Court takes up the case, you could absolutely see a major shift in uh, not only federal law, which is directly implicated here. There's the Gun Control Act uh, bans licensed dealers from selling handguns to young adults, um, although they can still buy long guns, and they can still possess handguns and buy them in private sales or have someone buy, you know, give them a handgun as a gift. You simply can't buy the gun directly from a dealer uh, under the law. So... If that goes away, you could also see a number of state laws affected by this down the line because there are several states that ban certain classes of weapons from ownership by young adults uh, purely based on their age, uh, including in California and even more recently in Florida uh, after the Parkland shooting. They, they ban um, young adults from being able to own, uh, you know, quote unquote, assault weapons you know, AR-15s and, and the like. So this ruling could have a big impact down the line. It's a fairly major ruling. I believe it's the first time a, a, a district court has held that the ban on uh, sales of handguns to young Amer Americans is actually unconstitutional. So we're going to see where that all rolls here going forward, and I'll make sure to stay on top of it for you guys over at the Reload. Uh, but coming up next, we have a interview with Duke University's um, wonderful uh, director of their, their Center for Firearms Law, um, Jake Charles, 
who discusses more about some of federal federal litigation that's been going on lately, specifically the California assault weapons ban case. And we talk about some of his objections to the language of the ruling or the way the opinion was written, which I think he has some interesting points to raise, but we also go back and forth about, uh, you know, his point of view on it. Uh, certainly something I think that's going to be a little different than what you might hear on other gun podcasts. So I think we get into a very uh, fruitful discussion and uh, I think it's going to be illuminating. So here we go right now. We're going to head over there and check it out. And we're here with Jake Charles from Duke University. Um, Jake, thanks for being with us today. I wanted to bring you on uh, to the podcast to discuss a differing point of view than I think a lot of my listeners will have heard to this point on the uh, Miller versus Bonta decision out of California on the striking down the assault weapons ban they've had there since uh, 1986. No, 1989, right? <laughs> um, but this ruling is a pretty significant one. It's the first time a, a district court has, has struck down a, a statewide assault weapons ban. Uh, I mean, it's really only eight of those in the country to, to go after, but um, this is the first time you, you've seen one struck down at this level uh, in the federal courts. So uh, it's a very significant deal. And I thought you had an interesting analysis of it, some critiques of it. And I, I wanted to get your point of view um, on the whole decision and why you have issues with it. But first, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background um, and a little bit about what you do at Duke University for any listeners who, who haven't heard of you before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm really delighted to be talking about this case. Like you said, it's a really important case that has some big implications for Second Amendment doctrine and also for the status of gun laws um, in California and, and across uh, the, across the country um, as we see the, the case getting appealed. Um, so I am the executive director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke Law School. The Center for Firearms Law uh, was started in 2019 uh, by two faculty co-directors, Joseph Bloker and Daryl Miller, who've written a lot about the Second Amendment and have been writing about it uh, since the day Heller came down when we first got a, a reinvigorated court doctrine um, that could be discussed in constitutional law casebooks and um, kind of across uh, across the whole realm of, legal, of the legal academy. Um, and so in my work um, at the center, I focus my scholarship and research on the Second Amendment and the regulation of firearms through both uh, statutes and through the Constitution and through the criminal law, as well as through civil regulatory mechanisms. Um, and yeah, we the, at the center, we, we host uh, conferences and colloquia and, and uh, symposia to bring scholars together with practitioners to discuss the Second Amendment and the kind of burgeoning uh, legal doctrine that surrounds it. Wonderful. Um, and obviously, I've, I've quoted you a number of times in the stories that I've written over the years uh, as a legal expert on, on Second Amendment uh, litigation and, and laws. And, and you, you obviously study a whole breadth of of firearms <clears throat> regulation and law across the United States uh, and at the federal level. Um, but I thought you had a, a pretty interesting critique of uh, this ruling in particular, um, where, uh, you know, uh, from what I've seen on uh, in a lot of conservative media, of course, uh, there's been quite a lot of praise for the decision, not just because of the outcome, uh, which obviously a lot of gun rights activists um, <laughs> like, of course, uh, because it strikes down California's uh, assault weapons ban. Um, 
but also uh, there's been a lot of praise for sort of the open nature of it, the sort of easily digestible nature of this ruling that's written in a way that the average person can understand. Uh, I guess what the uh, Judge Benitez is, is getting at um, with his decision, it's laid out in a way that's um, really something that just a normal person can read and, and at least understand the arguments, whether they agree with them or not. So uh, that, that, I think, has been the universal praise that I've seen on the right for this decision, in addition to, uh, you know, the belief that it's correct on the, the merits of the case. But um, you've brought up a number of critiques uh, for the way that Judge Benitez handled this case, um, including, uh, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of focus on some of the um, the metaphors that he employed, uh, the Swiss Army knife one in particular got a lot of uh, gun control uh, advocates upset because they don't like the concept of comparing a, um, a rifle to a knife or utility knife, uh, I guess was, is the point there. But your critique goes obviously a bit more in depth than that uh, surface level critique about metaphors being used. Um, can you explain sort of your main objection to uh, the way that Benitez laid out this this particular ruling. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, maybe I'll I'll start with kind of the the stylistic or rhetorical critiques, which which you note I've written about on uh, the center runs a blog called Second Thoughts, in which I've written about this case and a lot of other cases. Um, and so, the kind of the concerns I have about the style and the rhetoric, I just want to first say uh, one, they're not connected to the outcome of the case. So. I have not made these kind of stylistic or rhetorical critiques of other decisions that strike down laws like the D.C. Circuit decision in Wren, even the Ninth Circuit's decision by Judge Lee affirming Judge Benitez's decision striking down California's large capacity magazine ban. Um, so so it's, it's perfectly fine with me to see a court decision striking down a law under Second Amendment grounds. Um, that's not what I take issue with in this opinion. Right. What I take issue with in this opinion is... And, 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 and just a second caveat, I understand why gun rights supporters would um, would be cheering this. It speaks in the language of the gun rights community, right? And so for, for folks living in California and thinking that ever more and more restrictions um, are being laid on their right to keep and bear arms, I can understand why you'd feel vindicated by a decision that speaks in that language. Um, to me, it's not effective as kind of a persuasive strategy, right? So folks who are not already going to agree with the outcome of the case are not going to be persuaded by the tone and the rhetoric that Judge Benitez uses. Um, and, and, you know, just a few, um, a few things um, to give illustrations of that that I think are kind of unnecessary um, in the way that Judge Benitez talks about um, the opposing side or opposing positions you know, he'll say, you know, the attorney general sneers as, as opposed to just the attorney general says or the attorney general argues. Um, he'll talk about things as a bromide or this myth. He talks about the media drumming up, uh, you know, false claims. And it, it just it comes off to me less like um, a normal judicial opinion where one is weighing the facts and the evidence on both sides and recognizing that. Um, even if you think the outcome question is easy, that there are 
kind of sincere arguments on both sides. Um, so the way I read the opinion is um, this is saying, hey, gun grabbers, y'all are just wrong, um, and you're, you're just doing this because you want to exterminate the Second Amendment, not because you have legitimate concerns about public safety, and even if you're doing so in a way the Constitution doesn't allow, you're doing it in good faith. It doesn't read to me like um, Judge Benitez thinks California is you know, uh, enacting its regulations sure. in good faith. Well, I mean, and obviously there's quite a lot of people who probably – would agree with him on, on oh, that yeah. point. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, uh, and so yeah, I guess uh, the question here is whether the uh, with the at least the stylistic approach to how Judge Benitez wrote this opinion, whether he was trying to um, persuade people in the middle or on the mm -hmm. uh, the pro ban side of things, or whether he's just sort of I guess fed up and not going to take it anymore. I guess would yeah. be one way of yeah. looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's had a, a, a number of these cases. Yeah. Um, I talked about the the LCM case. He's had a couple other cases, and so yeah, he might just say, "Look, I've heard these same arguments. Um, I found them unpersuasive before, and I find them unpersuasive now. And you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm done giving the benefit of the doubt to the state of California. And I'm just going to say, I'm just going to lay it all out here. Um, you know, what you're doing is just not okay. Right. But you ultimately find that. Uh, to be perhaps a detriment to what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, kind of personally and as a matter of judicial style, I think that's not the most effective way to write a judicial opinion um, because, you know, like it or not, his opinion is going to be binding on people who disagree with it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to the extent that uh, one one key element of laying out the reasoning of your ruling in a judicial opinion, as opposed to just an order that says this law is unconstitutional, here's the order, go serve it. The, the, one of the rationales for writing out your decision is to you know, enhance rule of law values and enhance public respect for the law and to give the losing side, here, here I analyzed your arguments and I found them unpersuasive for these reasons. Mm -hmm. And so, but he, I mean, he does that. That's one of the key. Right? Yo, cer certainly. It's yes, just yes, whether or not, not he does yeah. it in a way that. Uh, is going to be, I guess, I guess, I guess your, your issue with his stylistic approach is that you don't feel that it uh, can reach people like you or, or like, uh, you know, uh, an average person who isn't already convinced that the gun, that the assault weapons ban is unconstitutional. Uh, you don't think it's going to persuade those people. I, I, you know, because, you know, you read the opinion, and I do agree with uh, the general take that it's, it's a fairly um, easy and approachable opinion uh, for the regular person to read through and have an understanding of where he's coming from and why he uh, decides the things he does. It certainly is um, uh, a bit of a bomb-throwing uh, opinion, which which obviously excites a lot of people who, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, agree with the outcome, um, but could certainly turn people off. Obviously, there's the... You have... I, I think the critique of the Swiss Army knife thing is kind of got really overblown. Um, it's like the first metaphor. I, I think I would agree with you there. It's, it's comes, right. comes like, oh, we read the first, you know, page of first it, sentence. and this was yeah. the first metaphor, so we're upset about that. I, I do also find it somewhat ironic to have people complain that he's comparing uh, an AR-15 to, or he's comparing a Swiss Army knife to a uh, military-style weapon, which is the AR-15, which, in reality, like, the only, of those two things... Only one has ever been employed by a military, which was, which is the Swiss Army knife. Um, not to not to get into the <laughs> debate about 
effectiveness of the weapon or lethality or, or anything like that. But I just find it sort of ironic the way that uh, the governor um, of California, uh, Newsom, made this overheated statement in response to, to the ruling. But um, sure. But obviously there's also things like the, vac- the, the weird vaccine um, comparison in there. He makes some sort of claim about vaccines have killed more people than uh, rifles do, yeah, which is very odd. I don't know if that's a typo or just a complete uh, misunderstanding of. I mean, obviously, there's right. been a um, a meme in conservative uh, some parts of uh, the far further right media that says vaccines are killing people because of a complete misunderstanding of how the uh, back, the adverse effect effect reporting system uh, works. Uh, it doesn't. There's been no. Right proof that vaccines have killed anyone uh, there right. people have died after uh at some point after they took the vaccine but there's never been any causal uh proof at all that vaccines uh, are harmful or have killed anyone um right. so yeah there, there's obviously a few uh of the sort of uh metaphors he uses don't really hold up very well and, and could be alienating yeah. Uh, like the vaccine one in my in my view, but I guess um, you know stylist that stylistically is one thing, right? I guess the mm-hmm. the real important thing about this ruling is whether or not it stands up on the the core of the case, the merits uh, of the case, right. and whether or not his reasoning is likely to be adopted elsewhere, uh, because that's when you could yeah. see this case um, really having a long term impact, because. If the Ninth Circuit doesn't adopt his his line of thinking on um, the core issue of whether or not an assault and span is unconstitutional, uh, or the Supreme Court doesn't ultimately adopt it, then it's really not going to have any practical effect in real life, um, right. especially now that the emergency stay has been granted um, to hold up enforcement of this ruling um, until the... Uh, the Ninth Circuit gets around to hearing it. So uh, that you also have, obviously, some more important critiques, I think, beyond the stylistic approach uh, of Benitez and whether his rhetorical flourishes are too much or whether he's, you know, wherever someone comes down on if this ruling was written well to help the average person understand the reasoning or if it was written in an overheated manner that's going to alienate people who don't already agree with um, the idea that the Second Amendment protects AR-15s and, and other kinds of firearms. Uh, what really matters long-term here is whether or not his legal framework is going to be influential or is persuasive and will be adopted elsewhere. So what are some of your yeah. critiques on that? And I'll say, yeah, so, so I'll say um, I have critiques of the substance, um, some of the reasoning, I am much more comfortable saying that the outcome is clearly within the range of reasonable disagreement on Second Amendment questions. So almost to the extent that I'm more, uh, I guess, my kind of more critical of the style and tone because I think it is a really important constitutional question than I am of the substance. So there are some things about the substance that I think are debatable and I, I might come down one way on them. Um, whereas Judge Benitez came down another way, but I think 
kind of the substance um, and the the rationale for getting there is kind of well within what's what's debatable in Second Amendment. Okay, doctrine. so you you um, find the substance is actually more defensible than the style of the the ruling, right? So that yeah, that's what that's what I would say, and you know I, I recognize that other people will disagree with sure. that and. Other people will say style doesn't matter at all. You know, all that matters is the outcome right. of the reasoning. Right. Um, you know, for me, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it does, but, you know, obviously style's not binding on anybody. It's only the kind of the outcome that's going to be Yeah, but I um, think it's still, there's so still an interesting discussion here that you brought up in both of your pieces on mm-hmm. on the ruling uh, as to some of the implications of, of the, right. the way that Benitez gets to the, the finish line in this argument. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he... He really takes uh, a couple different approaches, I guess you could say, throughout this ruling. Uh, And you see this occasionally, especially, I think, when a judge anticipates that the next level of review is not going to be friendly towards his his reasoning. He he can try to adopt a couple different uh, standards of review to go through them all and say, look, even if you looked at it in a different way, it's still going to be uh, an unconstitutional law. Uh, and so Benitez does yeah. that in this case. And, um, he does. And he so does. he goes through at least two different standards, maybe three, I guess, you, you could pull out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you can you just walk us through your view of them? Uh, you just lay out the three uh, that, that you noticed and some of the issues. Maybe we can take them one by one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first kind of test that Judge Benitez applies is one that he – also applied in the LCM case, and he, he calls it the simple Heller test or just the Heller mm-hmm. test. Um, and this is for Judge Benitez. Uh, this is maybe one of the things that I take the most issue with on the substance, where Judge Benitez takes a test from Heller um, that he says means when an arm, anything that qualifies as an arm under the Second Amendment, is in common use by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes. Um, that ends the inquiry of whether or not the state can regulate and or ban it, Um, right? And so without respect to whatever the state's interests are, how nearly tailored this is to the interest, normal kind of inquiries that we see in Second Amendment cases in particular and then in constitutional law generally. And so, you know, I take issue with this because I I just don't think this is – the best reading of the Heller decision or the best kind of way that you would synthesize how Second Amendment doctrine is developing in all the other courts of appeals. Um, and so to the extent that coherence in the doctrine is something that's important and, you know, to me as a legal scholar, like um, when we can we can say what's going on with the doctrine um, in the Second Amendment space, this one is an outlier for that kind of reasoning. Um, that doesn't mean that this current Supreme Court might not adopt this reasoning. I just don't think that's currently where the doctrine is or the, or the best reading of Heller. Um, right. And that's the case because um, Heller was dealing with one particular type of ban of one particular type of mm-hmm. weapon. And it would have been easier It would have been easy for the court to say um, what Judge Benitez takes to be the simple test. And the court says expressly in Heller, we're not setting out any particular standard here, there's going to be time enough for us to get to yeah. this um, I guess that's later. the problem with Heller, right? I, I discussed this with uh, mm-hmm. David French on the previous episode of the podcast. And, uh, I mean, Heller is, is a compromise ruling. It doesn't really lay out a clear standard for how Second Amendment cases should be uh, 
adjudicated going forward. It, it just kind of says, well, this handgun ban is, is certainly not constitutional at the very least. Uh, if the Second right. Amendment means anything, it means that you can have a handgun in your home for personal protection uh, because handguns are, uh, you know, the quintessential self-defense weapon right now. Um, obviously, the easiest way to read Heller and then get a simple test like what Benitez tries to do here is just going by a common use standard. Um, I, yeah, certainly this court doesn't say this is how should, all Second Amendment cases should be decided, but you can read the text and and think, well, um, that's at least one takeaway that y- you could have. Uh, it's, uh, I, I understand where you're coming from in, in the sense that it's not it's not what the court says should be used uh, as a standard uh, for other cases because the court doesn't really do that at all in Heller, which is why we have this, yeah. uh, at least from a gun rights advocate's point of view, this this lost decade of gun litigation where the court just sort of ignored right. the whole issue after Heller and McDonald, um, you know, Sertano is just kind of reaffirms the idea that it's not just limited to 18th century weapons uh, being protected, right. but otherwise the court's kind of abandoned its, its foray into Second Amendment litigation. Um, now, obviously, it's this the latest case will likely result maybe not uh, we'll see we'll see yeah. uh likely result in in some more clarity on the issue but i mean they've been doing first amendment cases for how many centuries now yeah about 100 years yeah. uh mm-hmm. there's the second amendment they have god what like uh if you count miller which uh, benitez does uh certain to yeah. a, in a certain way uh they've only been doing they've only had what four cases and most yeah. of them don't result in any sort of like McDonald is just incorporating Heller to the States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no standards. Yeah. Satrina just says what we said in Heller is still true. Um, so you've got one Miller maybe counts as a second one, but Miller doesn't really yeah. talk about much other than just that short barrel shotguns aren't protected by the second amendment um, because they're not, suitable for military for militia use um and that case you know there's a lot of issues (laughs) with with the but um but yeah i mean i guess if you're if you're looking at how i I agree with you you you, yeah there's a way to read heller to get that i don't think that's the best way because in my view what heller's doing in that portion where it's talking about common use is it's juxtaposing Weapons that are outside protection of the Second yeah. Amendment, dangerous and unusual right. weapons, and it's saying the opposite would be weapons in common use. And for me, that's the question of whether you get Second Amendment scrutiny at all. So it'd be similar to when we think about a First Amendment case, um, and we think about something like, say, securities fraud. That's just considered outside the scope of the First Amendment. It doesn't get First Amendment scrutiny at all. Whereas if we're talking about, say, political campaign donations, then we're in First Amendment land, and then we apply a level of scrutiny, Mm. right? And so for me, the common use test is, to the extent that it's a useful test, and I think there are some useful parts of it, it's the same kind of thing. It asks the question, are we even in Second Amendment land? Are we getting Second Amendment scrutiny? And so we look at something like a hand grenade, and we might say it's not in common use by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, so it doesn't get Second Amendment scrutiny at all. Whereas we move to stun guns, it is in Second Amendment land, then we move to the scrutiny 
step. And so that's why I see it still being a function of the two-part framework as opposed to a standalone test that's going to end all the inquiry. Hmm. So what would the second, in, in your ideal reading of, of Heller, what, at least yeah. in your reading of Heller, what would the second step then be? After that, point. yeah. So I think I think Heller leaves this open. I think that with the way that this lower courts are doing it makes a lot of sense um, to my mind. And so this is step two, or moving to the second kind of line of argument of Judge Benedict's opinion, where he goes on to, uh, you know, he says the Heller test is my preferred test, and I'm going to analyze it this way. Then he says I recognize the Ninth Circuit's adopted this two-step framework, so I'm going to move on to the two-step framework. So in the Ninth Circuit's two-step framework. Step one is this coverage question, and it asks, does the law at issue burden conduct that's protected by the Second Amendment? And then if the answer to that question is yes, then you move to the second step where you apply some, sort, some form of means into scrutiny. So some way where you're testing whether the law at issue is tailored enough to the government's interest in regulating that activity. Right. Um, and so I think, I, you know, I think that's... Make, you know, isn't that the kind of balancing test that Heller warned against using in, in Second Amendment cases? Yeah, so there, you know, as, as you well know, um, there is this heated debate about whether or not what the courts of appeals are doing is the version of Justice Breyer's dissent that the Heller majority expressly disclaims. And it says, you know, we, we, the Second Amendment is not subject to a freestanding interest balancing test. I think there are a couple important responses to that, but I'll, I'll be the first to say that Heller is really unclear here on whether this kind of scrutiny is consistent with what it envisions for Second Amendment cases. Um, so one response to it is, you know, the Heller court expressly disclaims Justice Breyer's test on the grounds that it says, we know of no other enumerated constitutional right who is subject to this kind of mm -hmm. test. Now, that, that, it could not be talking about scrutiny, then, if it says that, because First Amendment claims are subject to intermediate scrutiny in some contexts and strict scrutiny in other contexts. So, um, you know, that's just one context, the First Amendment. You know, obviously, there's other, um, other constitutional rights have other kinds of doctrinal frameworks that implement them. Um, but so the, I think one of the biggest rejoinders is just if, if Heller meant to say that Justice Breyer was proposing just normal tiers of scrutiny that it uses in the First Amendment context, then it should have said that was off the limit, off, off, uh, off the table too. But what it says was it's a freestanding proportionality interest balancing test um, that, you know, if you look closely at Justice Breyer's opinion, yeah, there's some relationship there between that and intermediate scrutiny for sure. Um, but he's not using the language of intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny. He's not using the language in his dissent that the courts normally use in First Amendment context and that the court of, courts of appeals have been using in Second Amendment context. Right. Uh, but either way, Benitez comes down on um, that second step, the assault has been failing that second step anyway. Yes. Um, yes. What do you think of his analysis in that, in that department? Yeah, so I think um, kind of in the two stages, one um, – What's the burden? Is it the burden on protected conduct? I think, you know, there's, uh, you know, kind of there's this, there's this conundrum in a lot of these questions about, um, about assault weapons bans because, you know, they are based on 
these usually, I guess not all cosmetic features, but features that are not making the weapon necessarily uh, more deadly, sure. right? And so one of the questions is, what's the government's interest in regulating, let's just call them cosmetic features. What's the government's interest in regulating cosmetic features? Um, the other, the flip side of that is, you know, what's the constitutional right to a cosmetic feature? Um, so if the weapon's the same, then what's kind of what's the burden on, on the protected right? Um, so I think, you know, the way that Judge Benitez resolves it is, you know, a perfectly reasonable way to resolve it and says, you know, this is a burden on protected conduct. Um, and then he does, you know, he says this is the most severe restriction because it's an absolute ban, so mm-hmm. it should be categorically unconstitutional. Um, and I'll just say, you know, another stylistic thing here, he says no other court's ever done this test before, but, you know, that's incorrect. The D.C. Circuit and Wren, when it struck down um, D.C.'s uh, May issue handgun licensing scheme, did the same thing. It said it was categorically unconstitutional because it was a complete ban. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is part of the doctrinal framework, right? One, you know, either it's so severe it's a total prohibition, and in which case uh, we're not going to apply any scrutiny. If it's a less severe burden on a core right, then we're going to apply strict scrutiny. And then if it's a lower burden or if it's not the core of the right, then we're going to apply intermediate scrutiny. And as you say, Judge Medias goes through each of those levels. And so just focusing on intermediate scrutiny here, which is what kind of all the other courts of appeals that have looked at these um, laws have have done, um, the question there is whether or not this is a reasonable fit with the state's interest. Um, And... You know, one kind of one criticism that I have of Judge Benitez here is in the formulation of what the state's interest in regulation is. Um, And he describes it narrowly as preventing gun crime. And, you know, to me, and and I think I haven't looked at the briefs, and, you know, this would be on the state of California if it didn't raise any broader interest, but states can have broader interest in regulating guns that are not only in preventing gun crime, right? It can have an interest in regulating guns because... Um, accidents. It can have an interest in regulating guns because of gun suicide. It can have an interest in regulating guns even, and at at its most controversial, it can have an interest in regulating guns because, um, you know, it thinks that that makes for um, a society where where people are uh, less fearful of going out and doing different activities. Mm -hmm. Um, So so Judge Benitez does, and if you do, define the interest narrowly as crime reduction with guns, then the evidence that you're looking at is, did it reduce crimes with guns? And so if you have a broader public interest, then you have broader base of evidence that you're looking at. Um, and then how Judge Benitez deals with the evidence, you know, I think that this is an area where it's fair to say that um, there are really compelling statistics on both sides of it, and experts with PhDs in economics who have reached diametrically opposed conclusions on whether or not assault weapons bans do anything. Um, and so, you know, as Judge Medias, as the trier of fact in this case, he can make the factual conclusions that, you know, he sees fit to, to find mm-hmm. um, based on the record before him. And so, you know, whether I would have come to a different conclusion or not is kind of irrelevant. He's the fact finder. Sure. He's looking at the evidence. I think it's, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, there's enough out there that you can, support whatever point you're making. Yeah. Um, beyond that aspect of it, because certainly you could argue one way or the other. I mean, obviously, uh, it's fairly clear that assault weapons, as defined in California, 
being mostly rifles aren't a major driver of crime. Uh, certainly not Absolutely. gun murder uh, or murder generally. Um, if you look at the FBI statistics, uh, which obviously the, the Benitez notes um, in in his ruling, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm more interested in the philosophical aspects of some of these things. So, because uh, Benitez gets into Miller, um, and and uh, as you wrote, sort of resurrects it in a certain sense, um, whereas um, <clears throat> Heller had gone away from the idea that. The right, uh, the Second Amendment is connected to uh, militia service. Um, obviously, the the right itself, as as written, uh, I think is fairly clearly not predicated on militia service. It's sort of uh, justified, perhaps, by uh, in the the text of the amendment by the need for a militia for you know the the security of a free state. But uh, the right itself is isn't in any way. Um, at least not in the text, um, predicated on, on that service. But but obviously um, Miller came down on the idea that, well, the guns, to be protected, they have to at least be useful in, mil- in militia service because there's a, there's a justification connection here between the, the right and the militia service. Um, and then Heller sort of, said the exact opposite. It's like, well, maybe when this was written, you know, it was useful. It was intended to replace militaries. And, you know, obviously there's a whole conversation to be had about uh, the founders' views of standing armies versus militias and and armed populaces and and so forth. Uh, And, I, you know, I talked fairly extensively about that with Charles Cook um, in a podcast interview. But, but, um, Heller ultimately says it doesn't really matter if you're, you know, uh, 1911 or your your Glock is useful in throwing off a modern uh, tyrant uh, because the rights, the actual right is disconnected from the prefatory clause that just sort of explains why the founders thought this right was important um, rather yeah. than m- makes the right rely on on that uh, idea to exist, right? So, uh, whereas Benitez in Miller sort of goes back to this militia service concept uh, when he's justifying why um, a ban on AR-15s and other um, rifles that would actually have uh, a dual use. This is where the the whole uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Swiss Army knife metaphor comes in is that like it's useful for home defense but also useful for um essentially throwing off homeland defense. yeah defense of the people i guess as a, as a concept like the philosophical uh revolutionary concept of being able to right. resist um tyranny uh, so it has this dual use uh, both in a well and, and then i believe he also talks about its use in you know, competitive shooting, things like that as well. Um, And so it has all these uses, but one of them that he zeroes in on is this use as a uh, tool in um, potential military service or or, uh, revolutionary service or armed resistance um, to tyranny. So that's uh, sort of a interesting 
um, wrinkle to I think his his talk. One yeah. one that I think, frankly, from my point of view, uh, gets ignored quite a lot. Um, Heller's a good example of it, where you know uh, the president himself. And again, I talked about this with Charles Cook, but uh, sort of mocking the whole concept of the founding <laughs> founding era, which was that you could through armed uh, resistance of the general populace, you could throw off a tyrannical government if need be, and that you, in fact, had a right to do it, um, and, and that the Second Amendment is part of that, because a lot of the, a lot of Heller just focuses on this quintessential self-defense weapon argument, but, like, handguns yeah. are important because they're, people use them to defend themselves, uh, you know, from criminal ingress, which is true, of course, but um, sort of brushes aside what was, I mean, to me, is kind of the core of what the Second Amendment is in the Bill of Rights for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I thought that was interesting that Miller, or that, that Benitez in Miller talk, talks about this point and brings it back up. What do you think... Uh, are some of the issues with that or, uh, uh, and, and do you think that's going to be something that stays as like, a? Uh, are other courts likely to get back into discussing this concept? Yeah. So I think, um, I'll agree with you on the history. I think, you know, that kind of the most, accurate reading of what the mindset would have been of the folks who were sitting around thinking about the second Amendment in 1791 were that they didn't want standing armies. Um, and so the best way to not have a standing army was to have citizen militias. And the benefit of citizen militias was that you're not going to tyrannize a people because you're not going to have a military force to tyrannize them with. You're going to have a citizen militia that's going to be standing up to you with arms if you attempt to tyrannize the people. Plus, if you're going to do defense uh, abroad or you're going to do a defense of your homeland, you're going to want the citizens who are, you know, connected to their homeland and fighting for their homeland as opposed to what the founders would have thought as a mercenary army, as a standing army um, who didn't have kind of the same connections to uh, to America. Right. Um, and, and obviously things have evolved quite a bit. Right. Our perceptions of military service and standing armies now are quite different right. than they were at the founding era. But um, – I mean, they had just completed a war, successfully completed a revolution where mm-hmm. armed militias of made up of, you know, the average people helped win that war. Um, obviously, they had a regular army in, in addition to that. But, but um, you know, it just seems sort of odd the way that we approach it now in the 21st or 20, yes, the 21st century. We aren't to the 22nd century quite yet, but. Yeah. <laughs> but, I had to think uh, about it. I was like, um, yeah, but uh, yeah. In terms, yeah. I mean, it's, in terms of this, it, it just seems like something that we don't talk about much in, in the jurisprudence of the Second Amendment now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see yeah. it brought up by Benitez, I thought was pretty fascinating um, because it's just kind of this ignored thing. And in Heller, it really, like yeah. Scalia, really just completely dismisses the idea. Um, and that yeah. felt to me like kind of a going back to that whole compromise ruling aspect of Heller it felt yeah. like a way of, of saying, Oh, we aren't going to, we're not striking down the national firearms act. That's what it felt because it's like, yeah. Everything and, and in the NFA, say, you know, it deals with 
yeah. small arms that would be useful in military service. And so, uh, you know, if, when he writes that section about M16s and, and how, you know, the, those are, it's okay to still, you know, we're not casting down on regulations of those. Uh, it just feels like kind of a cop-out, like this thing about, oh, well, maybe when the Second Amendment was written, you know, it had this component to uh, being useful in, uh, you know, armed resistance to uh, tyrannical um, militaries or, or tyrannical governments. But, oh, well, that, that's, that's sort of the, the Joe Biden line of, like, now you'd need an F-15 and a nuke to fight the government. It's like, well, one, is that even really true as we sit here pulling out of Afghanistan today? Um, and two, like, I mean, it presents, I, I don't want to get too far off track. And I talked about this in the previous podcast, but it presents a kind of nihilistic view of the world where basically uh, it's impossible to ever overcome uh, a tyranny, a modern tyranny with, with armed revolution is essentially the argument now because I guess technology has advanced too far and tyrants can just do whatever they want uh, and there's no way an armed populace could stop them. But it's sort of, get, uh, you'd think uh, there'd be more thought put to it in the litigation, at least. Yeah. Let me say one word on Heller and then I'll say um, what I think of Judge Benitez is what I do think is a resurrection of this Miller um, rationale. So in Heller, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the, this was called the insurrectionary theory of the Second Amendment. And it, and it was in vogue for a while um, as the Second Amendment started being rejuvenated in scholarship in the 80s and 90s. And there's some good writing by this law professor named Riva Siegel that talks about how what Heller was doing <clears throat> was taming the Second Amendment and making it kind of more palatable for a 20th century, 21st century audience um, because what's happening in the mid to late 90s that the militia movement is getting a lot of bad press, right? And so um, in order to distance itself from the militia movement that is challenging government authority, Heller turns and says it's a self-defense right. It's not a right to resist tyranny. Um, and so the first and second clauses of the Second Amendment are delinked, and Heller can say, it's all right if we don't match these up anymore. That's just changing historical circumstances, but we're not changing the core of the right, which is self-defense. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's very unlikely that the founders um, were concerned that states were going to eliminate the right to self-defense. Um, right? There was a common law right to self-defense that was not being threatened at the time, um, but they did have experiences with um, with monarchs and, tyrant and, and tyrants um, disarming the populace. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Heller vindicates this self-defense rooted Second Amendment right. <sighs> Judge Benitez's reading of Miller, you know, if all you have is Miller, it's not a bad reading. I think if you have Heller, it's really hard to square. One, it's hard to square Heller and Miller in the first place. Um, yeah, but two, it's hard to it's hard to re get this militia right out of um, out of Miller post Heller because it's to me it's impossible to say that you have a militia right to an AR-15 and not an a militia right to an M16, right? You know, how is the militia right that Judge Benitez vindicates going to draw the lines that Heller draws? And so you might just want to say that Heller drew the lines poorly, um, but if we're going to accept that Heller is 
kind of the law here, it's really hard for me to say that there's going to be a militia right to a certain weapon that's going to be vindicated in court. And, you know, that, you know, kind of getting back to the, the, the tyranny notion, um, you know, I think the founders, yes, would have recognized you have a right to rebel against a tyrannical government. Um, I think it's more tricky whether they would have thought that's the kind of right that you go to court to vindicate, though. You know, it's the declarations like we appeal to the judgment of mankind for our actions. So sure. it's kind of like you have a higher tribunal when you're exercising this kind of right. Um, yeah. if, the, if the government's so tyrannical that uh, you got to take up arms against it, it's it's kind of odd to think I'm going to go to their courts and ask their judges to adjudicate it. Right. No, certainly. But that's that's where Charles Cook had a really good point on the on this, which is essentially that like uh, I, think, I think it was New Hampshire, perhaps uh, had a had a clause in their constitution that enshrine the right to a revolution, but no... I think Tennessee does, too, maybe. Right, uh, but no right to keep and bear arms at the same time, and so it's sort of this pointless... Uh, I think uh, what was Madison called them, like, you know, paper... Pa- paper parchment barriers. Parchment yeah. barriers, yeah. Like, it, the, uh, the concept is that the right to, to armed resistance against tyranny... Uh, exists and so the way to protect that is by practically allowing the armed uh, populace to be armed. I guess is the mm-hmm. basic concept right there. Like as far right. as like, yeah, you, it's hard to go to a federal court and prove your, uh, you know, your revolution against the gov- federal government was protected by, uh, you know, the Constitution. But it's a different thing when. Uh, you're proving that your right to own firearms as a populace, yeah. uh, you know, it, it can be protected better. That the actual practical application of it can be protected better than the, you know, this philosophical concept of the right to uh, armed revolution against tyranny or the right to throw off yeah. tyrants. Um, yeah, so, I, I yeah. agree. I, I just think that kind of the whatever underlying value we're going to ascribe to the Second Amendment is going to drive a lot of the questions about, you know, to which arms it applies, sure. to what the government has to show. Um, and so if, you know, if anti-tyranny is the undergirding rationale, then um, hard to see how any kind of restrictions, um, you know, on weaponry in general. Like, yeah, or at least on pre-served weapons, right? like small arms uh, that on an individual yeah. basis. Um, Maybe, I mean, but... You know, I could see a, an argument for not drawing the line there, right? If the militia is a collective right. group that's going to act in concert in the name of we the people rise up against a tyrannical government, then you think, you know, why not have all the weapons the state can have? And, I, yeah. you know, there are there are these genuine arguments that uh, yeah. that a person should have a Second Amendment right to whatever weapons the government gives its soldiers. Yeah, um, right. I mean, I, I think that's something that the people who filed this, you know, Firearms Policy Coalition types... Are, yeah, are think, yes. <laughs> really uh, fairly philosophically consistent on that, on that point. I think that's honestly. right. I think so, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you, the response by a lot of people uh, is oh, yes, yeah. um, at least yeah. within reason. You know, really, yeah. But then yeah. I get, you know, obviously you're always going to have some argument over where the line is. But yeah. um, I mean, it's certainly, I think we're still at such early point in the uh, litigation of, of the Second Amendment and what it protects. Mm-hmm. That we're still like that common use uh, method, uh, common use standard mm-hmm. is still very useful because, you know, Heller, all Heller establishes is that you can have 
the a handgun, which is as you know the quintessential self-defense weapon, the, the, as a category, is extremely popular in the United States, owned uh, universally throughout the state, the, the the country, and you can't just completely ban the ownership of it within someone's home. But that that's what Heller establishes. Uh, it's not much. It didn't really have much of an effect. In fact, right. the probably the most practical uh, effect of the Supreme Court cases from Heller to McDonald to Citrino to this point, and I always pronounce Citrino. I have no idea how to pronounce that name. I call it Caetano. Caetano. How <laughs> we pronounce that name? We need more McDonald's. That's an easy one. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Miller's, not bad. Uh, but... Yeah. Uh, Probably the biggest throughput to striking down actual laws has have been with stun guns, ironically. Yeah. Because there's not yeah, there weren't that many right. handgun bans to begin with. It was a very right, right. fringe policy to start with. Um, but the, you know the idea seemed to be that they would build from there, and then they just really mm-hmm. didn't do that mm-hmm. um, until now, perhaps. Um, but you still have a lot of firearms in places that are extremely popular. The AR-15 is the most popular <laughs> rifle in the entire country. Yeah. And so, you know, the, that's where, like, common use, yeah, it's it's a flawed standard because, like, what is, first of all, what's in common use? I, you know, I don't know. But presumably the most popular rifle in the country would qualify yeah. uh, to any reasonable person. And then, you know, oh, okay, just, so if it's in common use, it can't be banned. What... Uh, you know, does that you brought this up as a critique? Obviously, that does that mean if some new technology comes along, as long as they ban it early, that it's okay? Right. Or you know, there's you know several hundred thousand machine guns in the NFA registry right now. Uh, yeah, is that common use? Three times the amount of stun guns. That yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously some people would say yes, of course. Um, like I said, yeah. the FPC. Yeah. Uh, contingent right. would would certainly agree that yes, it should. Perhaps I would agree. I, yeah. you know, certainly, but yeah, but uh, but if you're going to make sense of Heller on its own terms, and Heller says, sure, Heller's Heller's machine guns out, and these ones in. How do we make sense of that? Yeah, yeah. and and you can't really in a lot of ways because um, right. Heller is a compromise ruling. It's meant to get five people on board with saying at least the handguns we can't ban, and then we'll figure out the rest some other time. And we'll put in some some stuff in here to make sure that we're not striking down all these laws that exist out there. We're just yeah. going after this specific law. That's all it does. And um, you know, and, and you know, it creates a philosophical point that that matters. But but beyond that, it doesn't have a huge practical effect in the real world. Anyway, that's why I think this the common use standard still matters today because you still have states yeah. that yeah maybe it's a minority position, there's only eight states with assault weapons bans. There hasn't been a new one since uh, really the fir- the 90s. Uh, Maryland updated theirs in like 2013, and there have been a bunch of updates to the other ones. Uh, Maryland was probably the most significant expanding of it in 2013 because it went from like a very small number of, of, I believe, handguns to what you traditionally think of as an assault weapons ban in 2013. But before other, it's fairly stable. It's not growing. There's not more. More states right. aren't adding solvents bans, but um, yeah. which is, makes it kind of ironic that we spend so much time talking about it. But it does. I will yeah. say that it does affect a lot of people because some mm-hmm. of the biggest states have them, 
right? California, yeah. New York, yeah. Massachusetts. Um, and th- that's where, like, you still have places that are banning even the most basic, uh, popular, the most popular firearms out there. Uh, and so it's hard to, as much as there are problems with that standard, um, it makes it useful in the short term, in the transition to building out a, a broader, more uh, yeah. <laughs> more complex reading of the Second Amendment, because like, we're still at such a, uh, a bare-bones totally. level of, of litigation on the subject that um, yeah. that's where these things come in and like there's critiques of them, but, but, uh, you know, I mean, we still have complete and total bans on the most, po- some of the most popular guns in the country it is I think the, the big issue that you're looking at when you, you read something like Miller, uh, v, uh, v Bonta and, and you go through like the standards that they put in or even, um, Heller too, right. With, uh, with Kavanaugh's interpretation of, of yeah. uh, Sullivan's bans and, and Heller uh, that relies on text history tradition. It's like, well, this is a really complicated standard to try and mm-hmm. uh, suss out what it means. But it comes yeah. down to this point of like, well, there, I think a lot of people, especially on the, obviously on the gun rights side of things, look at the current situation in some of these states and say, well, there's got to be some. The second amendment must mean something here, you know. Like, we're, there's yeah. got to be some line, and we haven't litigated what that line is yet. And maybe we're gonna. Who knows what the ultimate standard will be? But there's got to be. Yeah. There's got to be something that that goes beyond just the government can ban literally the most popular guns in the country for any reason it wants. So yeah. I guess that's the rub of it. Yeah, no, I, I I can totally see that. And I think, you know, you see similar things, uh, similar arguments with may-issue laws mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, functional no-issue laws in some places. Say the same, you see the same thing with, uh, you know, bans on those with nonviolent felonies that yep. were 60 years old. Um, so I think hopefully we'll get some more guidance when the Supreme Court decide this most recent case um i'm a little skeptical that it's going to give us all the answers to how we're going to decide the next wave of second amendment challenges yeah. I, you know i think it's probably um more likely than not that we'll see another kind of compromise opinion where uh if you know if justice thomas was writing the opinion it's going to it would come out very very different than um either justice thomas for a majority or whoever's writing the majority opinion is going to come out right yeah i mean i guess that's the that's the thing about cases like Miller. You're going to get a lot of very mm-hmm. different standards applied to Second Amendment cases until the Supreme Court does something uh, yeah. to address it. Yeah. And um, I mean, this is their opportunity, I suppose, with the gun carry case. Because, yeah, there's a lot of the same critiques of May issue laws. Um, mm-hmm. Like, what does the bear part of keeping bare arms mean? If, if, if you literally can't carry a gun in public at all, like it's the same it's the same question of like is what is the bare minimum of what this could possibly mean you know yeah. uh does it mean that you have to have constitutional carry or you know permitless carry right uh mm-hmm. you know maybe they don't go that far but they've got to set some standard because right now like hawaii 
for instance. It's kind of funny that the New York, some of the decisions about what gets picked and what doesn't. I mean, I guess there's a lot more that goes into it beyond just who has the most radical law. But Hawaii, you effectively cannot carry a gun at all, ever. Nobody gets permits there. Like, at least in most of the May issue states, they... They actually issue some permits. Some people, yeah. But, uh, I mean, you, you still have states in the country where it's literally impossible for the average person, whether they have a clean record or the most, they're the best trained person in history, to get a concealed carry license. And so, you know, just like with banning the most popular guns in the country from possession, a lot of gun gun rights people look at that and say, there's got to be some standard. <laughs> there has to be something. Yeah. This must mean something. And I think we're still at the very early stages of figuring out what that line is. Um, and yeah. I don't, you know, maybe the court's going to become more proactive now that they've taken up a case uh, on the core issue here. Yeah. But I guess I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, I think I think you're right both about um, kind of the value of an opinion like Judge Benitez is, you know, aside from my, my criticism of it, but... You know, the value of it is that the Supreme Court has not announced anything yet. And so the more fluctuation there is in lower court opinions, the more theories there are out there in lower court opinions, the more the Supreme Court has a chance to look and say, you know, this is working, this is not working. Like when we actually try to apply this kind of doctrine or this kind of framework, it looks like it leads to some odd outcomes or, you know, this one leads to better outcomes. And that one, that's, you know, kind of one of the values that is uh, is pointed out for the lower court letting things percolate or the Supreme Court letting things percolate in the lower courts is it gets a chance to see what's working and what's not working. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sure. different people are going to draw different conclusions about whether the doctrine's working now or not, sure. um, but the Supreme Court, I get a chance to see. feels say. like they've been uh, brewing this cup of, of coffee for yeah. you know, 12 <laughs> years now, though. They could, probably ready. <laughs> start, they could probably do something with it. Maybe take a sip. Um, so what, yeah. uh, what do you have coming up over at Duke University, you guys have any uh, interesting stuff coming out soon here? Yeah, so we're uh, we're in the early stages of planning our fall and spring symposiums and conferences. Um, we're going to be doing some events around democracy and violence and guns and race and guns, um, with a whole bunch of different perspectives on kind of how uh, firearms function in our multiracial democracy. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I would encourage my listeners to go over. Um, to your website uh, and, and find some of those symposiums maybe they can attend or, or watch online themselves because uh, I think it's important to bring in uh, and listen to serious uh, points of view that differ from my own. Uh, that's that's why I wanted to bring you on and, and uh, have you discuss your, your critique of, of this law because I'm sure a lot of my listeners haven't heard really serious critiques of uh, of the opinion, um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the Swiss Army knife freakout thing, but uh, there's a bit more to look at with uh, Benitez's assault weapons ban ruling and some interesting implications from it. And uh, I, th- that's why I wanted to have you on and have this discussion because I want to I want to have the podcast be a space where we can get get people to come on and give their you know rational reasoned uh, uh, points of view that and really learn from them and at least engage with them. And and uh, I think that's really beneficial. So uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? What's the best place uh, that listeners can go and, and read more from you? 
Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Twitter at JacobCharlesNC and the Center for Firearms Law on Twitter at Duke Firearms Law. And you can visit us on the website at firearmslaw.duke.edu. And we have a blog. You can subscribe to the blog. We'd, uh, we'd love to get readers. We you know, try to do our best at laying things out fairly. Um, and when we have events, hosting events, we try to um, bring in folks with different perspectives on these issues because... You know, like you said, I agree with you that it's really important to hear multiple perspectives on such an important issue. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. All right. That's all we've got for you this week on the Weekly Reload podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jake Charles. Like I said, the goal of this podcast is to bring uh, reasonable people on from different points of view and hear them out, have a discussion with them. And I think we accomplished that in this episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, members get this early. They get this a day early. That comes out on Sunday with the members newsletter, which is also exclusive for members, as you might realize from the name. But uh, everyone else gets it on Monday. So if you want to hear this a day early, make sure you subscribe to the Reload. Go over, buy a membership. We got yearly. We got monthly. You're going to love it. You get a lot of extra content. And you get to support what I'm trying to build here at The Reload, which is, of course, sober, serious firearms reporting and analysis. Something you don't get a lot of elsewhere. So, anyway, that's all we've got for this week. I really appreciate you tuning in. And I will see you again next week. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones. 